my first time hosting an Instagram mm. live. So let me just welcome everyone again. Everybody, welcome to a special episode of the Iran podcast, a weekly podcast where we discuss issues relating to Iran. And this time, for the first time, we're doing it on video, a video cast uh, with a special guest, Behdad Esfahbud. He's a computer engineer who used to work at Facebook, before that, Google and other companies, and he was just recently in Iran, was arrested and pressured by the Revolutionary Guards to essentially be an informant for them. We're going to hear about all of that, more details. So, well, uh, Behdad, welcome to you. Thank you for Thanks. joining I'm, us. How I'm are you good. doing? I've been, uh, well, again, the recent arrest was back in January, and I spent months in pandemic and isolation and dealing with trauma. But now that I've got this weight out of my just mind or chest, I feel a lot lighter and I'm very well supported by friends and family and people like yourself. So thanks for having me here. Okay, great. So let's start uh, with, let's tell those who don't know a little bit about you um, with at least your recent work. When you traveled to Iran, um, you were working as a computer engineer for Facebook. And before that, you were working for Google. Tell us what you did. What so, were you uh, doing at Facebook and Google? I'll just give you the 20-year version of my career. I started working in Iran at the Sharif University uh, around 99, 2000. September 2000 was the first, when I got my first paycheck. Uh, and I was working on making it possible to read Persian on the internet because back then it wasn't possible. Uh, it was only possible on Internet Explorer and that was buggy. It had that, that problem with the middle year, if you remember. Anyway, so that's how I started my career and making mm. Persian work on computers everywhere. But by the time I got to Canada and got involved in open source projects, and then I started my first job at Red Hat in 2006, I was working on making reading possible on computers for every language and every writing system. And that's what I've been doing since. Uh, so at Red Hat, I was focusing my work on uh, open source free software systems like Linux distributions. Then I joined Google in 2010 and I continued to do the same thing, but uh, now my work was also being used in Chrome and Android and Firefox. And I stayed at Google for nine years and continued doing that. Uh, and then Facebook was similar. I was helping them they let me con continue uh, my open source work, working on my main project, HalfBuzz, uh, which is used by billions of people. And uh, I was also helping fix text rendering in Facebook products, like for example, this same Instagram stories, the text are, when you're posting text on your stories, that's one of the projects I was working on. <laughs> Mm. So let me just explain to those who might not be familiar with the Persian language. If if you work with the with your computer with English or any a Latin based language, it's just it seems seeming seamless and so easy for you. But it's just so complicated. I remember as a user on the user end of this that it took years for 
major platforms, you just mentioned Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and the ones before them to adopt the Persian language. And I know I've heard from other experts that you worked so much on uh, basically making this inclusive for Persian speakers and standardizing the use of Persian language in these software. So what I'm trying to get at is that no, no. it wasn't political because that's yeah, the first question I wasn't... everyone asked political i wasn't an activist anything even what i did after the green movement which is what people associate with me being an activist even at the time i was full time i was posting uh, my opinion and the news that i believed is true on on my social media accounts and mostly in english and i interviewed with a few like with BBC World Service, and I was spreading the news of what was happening in Iran. Mm. At the time, I was a full-time engineer, full-time employed mm. as a software engineer. So uh, people like to use that to say, I'm, I was an activist and I'm a special person. I'm not, I was a citizen and every citizen should care about their country and should be, uh, should speak out if there's something going on that they, they want others to hear. So I never called myself an activist. And to call me an activist and to associate what happened to me to being an activist, that's dismissing the bigger story here. The bigger story is that I wasn't an activist. I wasn't a journalist. I wasn't a nuclear scientist. I was just a regular software engineer with with expertise that was not of any interest mm -hmm. to the Iranian regime. They did this to me because I was friends. Mm -hmm. I repeat it, I was just friends with people like yourself, with Iranian activists outside of Iran, especially the ones who work on internet freedom. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get to that later. Um, let me just explain because I was also involved with the Green Movement um, protests outside the country and I remember you being involved and it was a time after the 2009 Green Movement that many in the diaspora, I don't want to say all, but mm -hmm. many, most Iranians in the diaspora felt like they had to participate, they had to share the news and basically like you're saying, be yeah. a responsible citizen, not necessarily an activist who's working for an organization or anything like that. And I remember even during the negotiations, the nuclear negotiations and the Iran deal, you also were part of a young group of Iranian diaspora who were supportive of the nuclear deal. So um, let's, let's keep that there and let's get to the story. In January, you traveled to Iran. It wasn't your first time since 2015, at least. I know you've been traveling to Iran. You've given lectures, you speak at universities, you are friends with the startup scene in Iran who many of them look up to you as, as a role model in the tech industry. And yeah, as you mentioned, after 2015, I've been back uh, about at least a ten, 10 times. And the first time I went in 2015, that was just after the nuclear deal activities we were doing, we were supporting. It was a few weeks after that. I was called and contacted by the, just the government's intelligence ministry back then and had a conversation with them in a public restaurant and they asked if they can contact me later. I said no and they respected that. So that was it. 
this time in January, I'm walking on the streets and four people, someone calls me by the last part of my last name that I never use. Uh, and I turn and there's this four plain clothes people, like for, in, for, other, for people not familiar with the Iranian uh, population, when you look at someone, you know whether they identify as Muslim, whether they identify close to the regime based on their hairstyle or uh, beard or how they dress. You you get a sense of what their ideological stance is or what their relationship with Islam is. So yeah, these four people of the kind of people I don't want to have to deal with, uh, they show me a paper and they say they have a warrant to arrest me. And I look at the paper and I see the name of the, the IRGC intelligence unit. And for a moment, I thought I will never see the free world again. Because I know that group, I know what they have done to other dual citizens, to other people, to other innocent people. Heck, just a week earlier, they had shut down the Ukrainian passenger airliner killing 172 people. You don't want to be of interest to these people. And then I look at the allegations and I recognize the usual uh, enemy of the state uh, working with enemy groups and just the usual things. They, they used to frame anyone they want to uh, destroy. And within minutes, I realized there's no point in resisting any of their demands. So they asked me to get in the car. I get in the car, get out, ask to read the paper again. I turn off my cell phone at this point and then get in the car. And there's two agents on my two sides and two in the front. And they start driving. They inform me that they are driving to my sister's residence to pick up my belongings as evidence. The first thing they asked me in the car was, what groups do you work, who do you work for? And I kept saying, I don't work for anyone or any groups or governments. And even that, one of these guys was really rude and aggressive and he wanted to bite. The others were nice. So the rabid one, uh, he just, yeah. So they weren't interested in, mm -hmm. uh, just to throw a question at you, they weren't mm -hmm. interested in your work as no, a no, high-profile no. engineer at Facebook or before that at Google or before that. They were interested, just to be clear to those who haven't heard the story, they were interested in people you had friendship, loose relations with, not that you worked with, that mm -hmm. you were friends with, that you had photos with. Yeah, that you they had no interest in my technical uh, expertise at all. They had, they showed no interest whatsoever in gaining access to Facebook infrastructure or anything. Uh, that's not what this was about. This wasn't about uh, a tech worker of the West being detained to give access to the tech in infrastructure. That's not the story, no. Even though some publication framed it that way. But no, that's not my story. <laughs> uh, no, they were only interested in my connections with Iranian activists outside Iran working on internet freedom. Mm -hmm.
So the, let me just explain a little bit about that. The internet is not free in Iran. There's a lot of censorship. There's a lot of blocking and filtering on certain websites and social media accounts. And there's a vibrant community of internet freedom activists and organizations outside the country who provide tools to Iranians to be able to surf the internet freely, to bypass the filtering, to use proxies and VPNs and different tools that they can access internet. And last November during anti-government protests, we saw mm -hmm. a near blackout of internet by the government. And some of these tools were very important and essential at some point. And it seems like the Revolutionary Guards, the people who arrested you were very sensitive about people outside Iran who are working to provide Iranians with tools to access the internet. So what did they ask you to do exactly? They asked you to uh, So to complement what you just said, it's exactly the internet blackout in November uh, to, to extinguish the uprising. I believe it's that set out chain of events that made the IRGC up their efforts to, to uh, infiltrate and uh, just extinguish the threat to them posed by the Iranian freedom fighters. And I believe that's how I became a suspect and I was, I entered their list because the last photos I have with these people of interest was from 2016. So a, a series of pictures from 2016 mm -hmm. conference at San Francisco called RightsCon I believe those photos are how it was flagged, uh, but I believe the November incidents are how I became a suspect to them. So yes, uh, five, six days of questioning, they questioned me about all these people of interest, uh, groups like uh, the Internet Freedom Fighters, Iranians uh, outside Iran, basically. And they are everywhere. Canada, like, for example, the main like focus groups? was on uh, ASL19.org, a Canadian uh, group that provides uh, mm -hmm. filtering so you can mention software. And they are very close friends of mine, some of them, because I was in Toronto and they were in Toronto. So we, we did our green movement advocacy together. And I went back to doing my technical job. Mm -hmm. They formed a group uh, and became what is now called Aslan Nusdah. But uh, back then, they were just individuals mm -hmm. like you and I. So, uh, mm -hmm. I know, I remember. So they were, so you were in, um, just to add some details, you were in solitary confinement. You were doing interrogations every day of questioning or interrogations. And when they found out you don't work with them, right. what did they ask of you? To yeah. So every day I was questioned uh, three, four hours in the morning, three, four hours in the afternoon. And one day it was snowing heavily. So the captors didn't come to work. And because it was also uh, snowing heavily, they didn't take me out for the daily walk either. So I was in that cell with no window for 37, 38 hours without leaving the cell at all. So that was really brutal. But yeah, uh, the, so after during all these interrogation questioning, 
they kept telling me that uh, they just want to make sure I don't work with any groups and they will release me in a day or two. That was obviously a lie uh, to get me to talk faster or more openly or offer things. Uh, on the third day, when it became clear that's their tactic, I asked for a lawyer and my head captor laughed and said, you're in a matter of national security uh, and you don't get a lawyer here. And then after five, six days, when it became clear to them that I don't work with any groups and I'm not an internet activist covered, then, then they changed tactics. Then he told me that, he said, okay, we are convinced you don't work with anyone and you don't do any work, interesting like work right now. However, you have uh, advised these groups before you have referred people to them, which I've done. Like the advice is I met with someone from Athens that back in 2012 or 13, they asked me how to start a website. <laughs> that was the advice. And I referred one person looking for a job to one of these groups as a translator. Yeah, that was my, the extent of my contributions to these groups. Uh, so my captors are like, yeah, you have done this thing. So now you have to wait and we write the report and we put it next to all that you have written. I, I, was, I wrote like 50, 60 pages of information about who this person is. How do you know them? How, uh, what have you done with them? How many times have you seen them? When was that? So the usual. Anyway, they told me that we write our report, we put it next to all your confessions, and this has to go to a judge, and you have to wait for a judge, for a trial, and then the judge decides how much prison time you serve. It can be two months, it can be two years or ten years. So they made it clear that the whole we let you go in a couple of days was, was a lie from the beginning. So they made it clear that I'm stuck there for quite a while, possibly 10 years or more. And then they tried to strike a deal. So they said, unless you post bail and we lift the ban on your exit from the country so you can go back to your life and you can come back and go freely uh, as long as, and, they, and that they would put the judiciary case on hold indefinitely so there won't be any trial. As long as I keep informing of them, I keep providing them the same kind of information about my friends, who is where, who is... Well, then... So what kind of information yeah. if you don't work with these groups and the, you know, that's, the photos are from public that's, events? That's exactly what, kind of what was so confusing because all the information they extracted me is publicly available and public knowledge. What they were doing is they downloaded my Facebook pictures, which were public, not friends, just public. They would download it and put it in front of me and say, ask me to name who these are. Most of those people were tagged in those photos. So they were just, it was stupid. They would ask me if what some person works with a particular group, ask ASL19, I said, I don't know, I don't think he works with that. 
Then they will say, but that's what it says on his LinkedIn. I'm like, then maybe he does. So the whole thing didn't make any sense. <laughs> the whole thing made, uh, let me tell you another point why it didn't make any sense. I kept telling them, I entered Iran this time. I just went to Google Play Store, which is not filtered anymore. And I installed Hotspot Shield and I had my full free internet back. So why are they so sensitive to Iranian working on this kind of software? Who knows? Then again, to me, it's an abusive regime and force trying to protect itself and it's extremely incompetent, so it keeps shooting in every direction. And sometimes that hits an airliner, and that sometimes it hits someone like me. They just don't know any better. That's my understanding. So they made you an offer that we are going to let you go after a week of solitary confinement, and they let you leave the country, basically in exchange for you informing yeah. them of your friends. And then how did they try to get that information from you? How did they right. try to basically so, uh, you? The plan, because they're also really, really scared of the American uh, intelligence services. So they told me, uh, they knew, they asked everything about my life. So they knew that with my partner, wife, we were in the process of emigrating to Portugal, to Lisbon. And so they asked me that when I finished moving to Lisbon to make an Instagram post and announce it, and then they will contact me on Instagram messages or leave a comment. And then they set mm -hmm. this code message with me that they would mention we had kebab in Daraka, which referred, they did feed me kebab that day, mm. uh, the last day, Sultani kebab. And the event present is, yeah. So they sent you a code yeah. message that yeah. was agreed, basically. Yeah, and I posted that to, on my, so the, this started. happened oh. in June, June 13 or 14. Uh, you also, uh, I know that you, you also noticed that I didn't post anything on Instagram between February and June, July because of the trauma of that agreement, mm -hmm. because of knowing that I'm being watched there. So uh, they said that first message, I ignored it. They, they kept trying to contact me on different uh, platforms on uh, WhatsApp, Telegram, Signal, they would try to call and I blocked a bunch of those numbers and completely ignored them. Then a couple of weeks later, my sister in Iran got a call from my head captor. And she was asked to, they were demanding that I call back and I refused to. And then they called my sister again, asking when I'm going to call back. And my sister said, I passed a message what he does is out of my control. And the captor said, so he's not calling. My sister said, looks like he's not. And they said, okay, and hung up. And then again, at this point, I was getting ready to make this public. I quit my job, I packed and moved 
back to Canada, leaving with family to get some support that I was missing for months, isolated and traumatized. So as I arrived in Alberta, and I was still unpacking, just a week ago, I got a message from my sister again that a, a mail, a piece of letter arrived in the mail from the judiciary demanding that I show up for further questioning within five days. And when I received that message, uh, I knew it's time. And I just sat down and wrote my story and got it out within a few hours. Mm-hmm. So you basically refused mm-hmm. to collaborate with them and mm-hmm. they tried to pressure your family and eventually yeah. to explain to our audience, you decided to come public and you wrote the entire episode of what happened to you in a yeah. medium post in a blog post on medium. And then it's been covered by media, Persian media and international media since you did that last week. Now, I want to also ask you, um, our time is ending soon, but I want to ask you mm-hmm. about safety and security because I know a lot of people are asking, knowing mm-hmm. that you're a tech expert yourself, a tech genius, if you ask some Iran, and um, what exactly did happen when you were arrested? I know they asked for some of your passwords and um, they got some of your information, basically lessons learned, what can be done, what is out of your hand, and what you recommend to people who may not be political, they're Iranians, but they love the country, they like to travel back and forth for whatever reason to see family, how they Mm -hmm. can take precautions for cybersecurity and safety as much as possible in such a situation. Like basically, what would you have done or what could you do yeah. Um, knowing um, this right now. So, listen to the experts in the field. <laughs> but I do uh, want to repeat a few things. Yeah. Again, I'm going to claim that I did everything right. I'm sure many will disagree. They are free to have their opinion. But one of the things I did over the years is if there was something that I didn't want, to be used against me later, I deleted it. So in my 15 plus years of data, there was nothing incriminating. There was nothing that they found that was a smoking gun. There wasn't. So to all the people who say, I shouldn't go to Iran with 300 gigabytes of data, that's uh, such a strong an argument and irrelevant. My 300 gig of data was mostly photos and pictures of my travel and restaurants and cooking and mostly public anyway. So ignore those. I had two-factor enabled. I had, but when you have someone standing in front of you with a with a big hammer and demanding to have your wallet, doesn't matter where you hid your wallet, right? So for all the people who say, oh, change your password before going to Iran. Yeah, I did that a few times. But there's two options. Either you want to have access to your email and Facebook from within Iran, so you're going to get access back. And I was taken on the street. It's not like I was stopped at the border or something. Or you're suggesting that anyone going to Iran lock themselves out of all their accounts for the duration of their visit 
That's extremely inconvenient to ask everybody to do. People want to access their social media account or email. But even then, even then, if you truly have no way to log into your account, if the IRGC Intelligence Ministry takes you hostage and you're in a solitary confinement with no access to a lawyer, with no access to anything, they demand that you contact whoever outside of Iran has your password and get your password. What are you going to do? You can refuse to. There's physical torture and possibly never see light of the world again awaiting you. So all those people, yeah. Let me, let me make a note here just for the non-Iranian audience who may not know about these, some of these infightings of the Iranian community. There has been some criticism directed at you. I think it, it's crossed into victim blaming um, of basically criticizing you by mostly people who are not tech experts, in fact, some journalists, some activists of why you provided mm -hmm. your password. Mm -hmm. Why did you provide your data? And this is this is why yeah. I'm discussing that, not to criticize you. It's a very uh, specific situation everybody is in. Nobody can judge someone else unless they're in that very exact situation. You didn't, like you're saying, you're not political. You didn't expect to be put into this situation. It came as a surprise. And it's always easier to judge something mm -hmm. after it's happened to someone else and you're not put into that situation. But basically, just to explain to our global audience, your password, you were asked to provide your password and your information from mostly cloud yeah. was taken from you, data was taken from you. But it's interesting you're saying that there was nothing incriminating against anyone, like anything that you didn't want someone to see, yeah. you basically deleted. So I think your, if there is one message I have, that. that's yeah, digital hygiene. If there's something you don't want to be found later, just delete it after you are done. And I do do that. I also do keep most of my communication. Mm. If you're following my other fights right now about the open type and type industry, I'm going and digging and finding emails people sent 10 years ago, using those to make my case. So keeping information, I do that intentionally, but I also make sure to not to delete something if I don't want it to be found later. So that's the only message I have to everyone. Mm. As someone who is not a tech expert, but is also under mm -hmm. um, focus by or interest of certain um, intelligence services. I agree with you. And that's the kind of practice I want to do. And not because I travel to Iran, because I can't travel to Iran. But even when you're somewhere, anywhere in the world that you think you're safe, yeah. you can always be subject to hacking of your account. So your data might not be physically with you anywhere, but you could be hacked and you could be compromised or anything. So if there's anything that you don't want to be ever found, exactly. you better just not have it ever, not save it or or assume that anything that you post anywhere private or, you know, in confidence that it's going to someday somehow be made public. That's just yeah. the nature of internet also. Yeah. And that's why we have disappearing messages. We have, you know, ways of yeah. destroying communication that's sensitive and things like that. So it's important to keep all of that in mind. So 
Um, just to wrap up, I, what is your plan? I know you're doing all these media interviews, but this, this episode, the media episode will end soon. What is your plan? If they keep pressuring you or pressuring your family, part of your family who lives back in Iran, how are you going to um, deal with it? And what are you hoping to achieve? Basically, well, uh, out there's of a few different this? aspects to that. First, let me tell you that uh, I still like to get some technical work done, but I also have a next career that I've been trying to kickstart. I want to dedicate the rest, the next chapter of my life to see where I can help with the medicinal and therapeutic psychedelics efforts, because I believe psychedelics like magic mushrooms have immense potential to help with mental illness and uh, to treat things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, which are major problems and very close to me because I've been dealing with a lot of this for years, decades, that people close to me have been struggling with this. So that's something I found extremely fascinating in the world and which is just happening now. Uh, so I want to jump on that train and see where I can help. As for what I'm doing with the Iranian regime, I keep talking and one reason I'm doing this is to protect my family, but there's also another reason. Uh, for 38 years or for all my adulthood, like most other Iranians, I shut up about what I think about this regime out of fear, out of, you know, protecting myself. But now the floodgates are open, now that they pushed me now that they pulled me into their game, I'm now going to talk freely about what I think about that regime. And I'll be fighting tyranny in Iran and everywhere as much as I can. So that's a lifelong, that always was a lifelong uh, cause, but I've been ignoring it. That I was happy that people like yourself are fighting that fight. But now that I, I got pulled into it, I'm going to play and dance all I can. I'm going to fight this fight to the end. Okay, well, I'm glad you made this public. You decided to speak about mm -hmm. it instead of quietly letting it, you know, destroy your life or your, um, your character. And I think it's very important because these arrests mm -hmm. are arbitrary. It's important to know pressuring a family is not even mm -hmm. legal under Iranian law. So this is something that could or probably Many. has happened to others before you. It may happen to others after you. Yeah. And by speaking out about it, you're basically opening the door, paving the way for others to have the courage to come out to speak publicly about it and to push back and to put pressure basically, and hopefully eventually put an end to this um, mm -hmm. arbitrary behavior. So thank you for speaking out about it. Thank you for joining this special episode of the Iran podcast.